From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Marijuana prosecutions plummeted after Coloradans legalized the drug. But the decline has been uneven, with some groups still targeted more than others. Our justice reporter, Allison Sherry, explains. Then cannabis and the Olympics, why the drug's verboten, how athletes use it, and what the future might hold. Plus, myths about the Old West are shattered in a new history book. It's about the post office, whose westward expansion was way more about big government than lonesome cowboys. The Postal Service was also a colonizing force, helping displace indigenous people, but not helping them keep in touch. You won't look at a piece of mail the same way after you hear from CU Denver's Cameron Blevins. He'll also explain why the Pony Express wasn't all that. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Black and Latino Coloradans have continued to be arrested for marijuana violations at much higher rates than white people, despite the drug's legalization. It's one of many details that leapt out of a new report on the impact of retail marijuana in Colorado. CPR's justice reporter, Allison Sherry, is here to talk with us about it. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Ryan. What do we know about those arrest disparities, first off? Well, we mostly just have the numbers that legal marijuana does decrease marijuana arrests. But I think what's perplexing and disappointing to many is that there remains a pretty wide gap among those still arrested for marijuana charges. The marijuana arrest rate for blacks was more than double that of whites. And this is the same disparity that existed before legalization. What types of marijuana charges are people still being arrested for, given that cannabis is legal in Colorado? Right. So so people are still being arrested for possession, maybe if they have a larger quantity than they're supposed to. They're also still being arrested for illegally selling cannabis, and they're being arrested for illegally producing cannabis. Okay. And again, these disparities are reflected in those. Is anyone in leadership talking about this continued disparity? You know, yeah, I talked to both State Senator James Coleman and State Representative Leslie Harrod, both members of the Black Caucus. Both said it merits further explanation. Coleman said it was incumbent on lawmakers and community leaders to hold police officers more accountable for why arrest rates would be different depending on the ethnic group for the same kinds of crimes. Harrod, who's been a real leader inside the Capitol on police reform, said that while legislation helps, it's not the end of the story. It was kind of an interesting reaction from somebody who you know, is a Legislates, yeah. yeah, exactly. That people need to question prosecutors about plea deals, charging decisions, that communities need to have alternatives to addiction-related crime than jails and prisons, and that, you know, 
She said she could work on legislation all day long that takes aim at disparities in the criminal justice system, but it will never be the end all be all. It has to be a little bit more, you know, you have to kind of question other parts of the system as yeah. well. All right, including DAs. Yep. Let's back up for a second and talk about this report itself. Why, why does the state prepare something like this? Well, state lawmakers back in 2013 mandated that there was some sort of accounting of how everyone's faring under legal marijuana. And so this report's published every two years. Oh. Uh, there have been two other reports before this. I'll note that in the executive summary, there's a pretty big disclaimer that because there aren't that many places to compare Colorado to, given the state's longer history with retail marijuana compared to other places, that some of the data could be a little subjective. It's obviously reported by police departments. It's reported by surveys among youth. You know, all of that stuff could be inaccurate. And so, yeah, we need to take some of this information with a grain of salt. I'll note that Colorado has 2,700 licensed marijuana businesses, uh, which combined generated more than $387 million in tax revenue Mm -hmm. in 2020. Uh, What other information stood out to you from this report? Well, I personally thought the juvenile data was kind of interesting. I think there's an assumption, maybe I had this assumption, that usage among middle and high schoolers of pot would be way higher in Colorado than in other places because it's easier to get, even though it's obviously illegal for them to still buy it here. But there was no measurable increase in juveniles using pot in Colorado than before it was legalized. Which is interesting, I thought. And researchers also found that 20.6% of Colorado high school students reported using pot in the last 30 days. That compares to 21% of high school students nationally. So, you know, clearly Colorado's right in par with with national numbers. Yeah, about a fifth then of high schoolers having used it in the last month. And again, the disclaimer is that this is a survey that students are taking at a school. I mean, how honest are how honest are they? I don't who knows. Maybe, I hope they're honest. I hope they're honest. The report also looks at what's happened with illegal grows in Colorado in the years since recreational sales began. Mm-hmm. And Allison, I remember law enforcement saying left and right that Colorado had become a hub for black market grows. Mm-hmm. Uh, do the data bear that out? Well, the actual amount of pot seized has gone up every year from about 7,000 pounds in 2012 to more than 27,000 pounds in 2019. But the number of reported seizures has gone down, which means either the cops are not reporting this correctly and it's still raging, or the actual seizures, when they do do them, are extremely large, but there aren't as many of them. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. And I do want to point out a public lands piece of data here that I found super interesting. We did a lot of stories throughout the years of illegal grows on public lands. Sort of hidden in the forest. Totally, totally, that they would come upon, you know, in a hike, some big illegal grow. Um, And that apparently hit an apex in 2017 when fully 80,000-some plants were seized from public lands that year. But then the next year, it was only 1,500 plants. And it's remained kind of stable since then. So I'm not sure that public lands piece is as huge of a story as it was a few years ago. What about cannabis use and impaired driving? There's a lot of concern about that early on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are findings in the report about that. The number of DUI summonses issued by Colorado State Patrol in which marijuana was involved increased by 120 percent between 2014 and 2020. Roughly 22 percent of DUIs in, in 2020, they also cited marijuana use in the report, either that marijuana was the the main reason the person was getting a DUI or was a combination of other alcohol and drugs. Okay, so it's reflected on the roads, I think we can say. Yes. Thanks so much, Allison. Thanks, Ryan. CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry on what state data reveal about the legal landscape around marijuana. 
And while we're on the subject of cannabis, the Olympics are set to begin without a key U.S. competitor. Earlier this month, sprinter Shakari Richardson was suspended from the Games after she tested positive for marijuana. It was a controversial move by the World Anti-Doping Agency, with many decrying the rule as unfair and nonsensical. So we wondered, does marijuana have any effect on athletic performance, and why is it a banned substance to begin with in the games? Angela Bryan is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at CU Boulder. She's done a lot of research on athletes' relationships with pot. And Angela, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. And CU's Roger Pelkey is the author of The Edge, The War Against Cheating and Corruption in the Cutthroat World of Elite Sports. He founded CU Boulder's Sports Governance Center, which it has since phased out. Roger, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. The World Anti-Doping Agency is the governing body on banned substances for the Olympics. Uh, Roger, why is cannabis on the list of what is prohibited in competition? Yeah, there's a deep, deep irony here. Uh, WADA, as you mentioned, was created in 1998 uh, to coordinate international uh, anti-doping regulations across countries. It's not a governmental organization. Mm. Um, at the time, the, the International Olympic Committee um, was under a lot of pressure due to bribery related to Salt Lake City. So the Clinton administration thought they could extract uh, some concessions. And as part of the U.S. domestic policy war on drugs, um, they were able to get marijuana on the list um, to signal that it w- wasn't okay to take marijuana, not, not for any sport performance-related reason. Not for any sport performance-related reasons. So the the reasons were just that the U.S. government isn't too fond of marijuana and hasn't been for a long time. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah, you know, at the time, in 1998 in Nagano, um, at the Winter Olympics, there was a Canadian snowboarder who uh, tested positive for marijuana, um, but was then immediately let off um, because the, the rules were unclear and, and marijuana really, it wasn't a focus of the Olympic uh, Olympics b- before 1988. So that, that gave the impression that you could, uh, you know, smoke pot, win a gold medal and get off. Um, and so the, the Clinton administration said, hey, that doesn't look good. So, so we want to get marijuana more officially on the list. And even though there was resistance internationally, they were able to, to get it on the list in 1998. And here we are in 2021, and it comes back and, and hits a, a, one of the most prominent U.S. athletes. Well, this is fascinating. It's really an extension of the U.S. war on drugs then. Uh, so are, are you saying that the Olympic leaders have never claimed that marijuana gives athletes an advantage? They, they have... Uh, there are reasons to put substances on the list and, and supporting U.S. domestic drug policies, not among them. <laughs> so in 2011, WADA did put out a study um, or more a summary of studies that, that alleged potential performance benefits, um, but that's never been viewed as particularly strong research. Um, and, and the penalties for marijuana are different than, than other performance enhancing drugs like steroids. So it's already treated differently. So I, I don't think there's a, much belief that marijuana uh, is, is going to make people run faster or lift more weights. Well, this is why we have Angela Bryan on the program, again, professor of psychology and neuroscience at CU Boulder. And she has done a lot of research, good research on athletes' relationships with pot. And, and what do you find, uh, Professor, is the reason especially endurance athletes, use 
cannabis? Let's start there. Sure. So um, first, I want to be clear that uh, although I have done research in this area, there really needs to be more because Mm. a lot of the research that's existing is older. It's from the 70s, the 80s. Um, We're running some studies right now that we think are going to be really informative, but we need a lot more data consistent with with what the other guests said. Is that a function of the federal prohibition? Yes. Okay. It's just been harder to do the research. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Now, what have you found are the reasons that athletes use cannabis? Sure. So um, we've talked to both endurance athletes, so more elite athletes. We've also talked to regular people, regular exercisers. Um, And for endurance athletes, the reasons tend to be focused around things like making uh, a longer workout um, more enjoyable, right? Um, Not to increase. Yeah. So if you're if you're an elite, um, you know, endurance runner, and you have a four hour run, right? Um, Taking an edible at the beginning of that run can help make it more enjoyable. They even talk about potential digestive um, assistance to make them not feel nauseous. Um, So those are a couple of the reasons endurance athletes cite. Um, For the more uh, regular exerciser, it's that issue of making it a little more enjoyable, but also the issue of recovery. So assistance with inflammation and pain post-exercise. People will use cannabis after um, they work out um, to help them with recovery. So a, a little bit like taking some Advil after a workout. Okay. Well, there are a million claims about what cannabis can do for one's body. Does the science substantiate those claims, the digestive claims, Mm -hmm. certainly the enjoyment claim. I'm not not sure that needs to be tested, (laughs) but the recovery and the digestive claims. Right. So we do know that um, one uh, one of the uses for which the Institute of Medicine cited cannabis as being effective was to help in chemotherapy chemotherapy-induced nausea. Um, So we know that cannabis has um, some positive effects in terms of digestive um, processes. Um, Now, it hasn't been studied in the context of endurance sport, but you know, you could make the association that if it helps with nausea in one circumstance, it probably helps in the other. With regard to recovery, um, we know that um, both THC and CBD are anti-inflammatory. CBD much more so than THC. So THC is what makes you high, yes. but CBD does not, and yet right. it's an active ingredient. Right. So cannabidiol has um, these anti-inflammatory properties. Um, it doesn't produce the high. That's a lot of the reason that many people are excited about the potential for CBD. Now, is CBD um, allowed in the games? Uh, my understanding, and maybe um, your other guests can help us with this, my yeah. understanding is that that CBD is allowed, but THC is not. Rod- and so Shikari Richardson tested positive for THC, THC, not cannabis. Roger, do you want to confirm that for us? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Okay. Well, I, I suppose then the question is, are the games actually prohibiting a substance that could benefit athletes in a healthy way? That's a looming question here. But of course, they're concerned about potential performance-enhancing attributes. So, Angela, can you answer for us whether someone who uses marijuana has an unfair advantage versus an athlete that doesn't? The existing evidence suggests that they do not. So the older data that I was talking about where they did carefully controlled laboratory studies, um, one in the 70s, a couple in the 80s, show that if anything, performance was harmed by cannabis, not helped. How so? So duration of exercise was reduced. um, In one of the studies was a cycle ergometer study. And I I think it was um, a a measure of power um, was reduced 
reduced um, in the cannabis users. Um, so, so that evidence suggests that it's uh, that it's not helpful. Um, the caveat there is that they were using very low-dose THC products, um, so they don't bear any resemblance to the kinds of products that are available on the legal market now in terms of THC potency. We have some data, though, um, in some of our studies, we test motor function. So they're, they're very specific tasks, so balance and some, some um, dynamic motion tasks. And we show with current levels of THC that those motor um, capacities are also reduced are also under reduced. the influence. Yeah. You know, earlier I said one question is, is there some benefit to athletes that doesn't put them at an unfair advantage? But of course, the natural flip side of that is, are there disadvantages? advantages. And it appears that there may be, Mm -hmm. although, as you've said, the research is scarce. Uh, Roger, WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, bans substances based on three criteria, whether it has the potential to enhance performance, whether it represents a potential health risk, and whether it violates the spirit of the sport. Where is marijuana supposed to fall under those criteria? Yeah, marijuana is a tough one because, uh, as we've just heard, the performance-enhancing evidence is not particularly great. Um, a health risk, um, it has health risk probably um, less than alcohol. Um, and the, the list has been criticized because the, the notion of the spirit of sport is very subjective. And um, as one official says, anything can be put onto the list. Um, so it's not a really rigorous set of criteria. Hmm. That last one, whether it violates the spirit of the sport, it just strikes me as a journalist as kind of squishy. Do you think that's true? Uh, it's enormously sp- uh, squishy. I mean, one of the most um, well most studied performance-enhancing substances is caffeine. Um, and it's generally understood that caffeine, and anyone who enjoys a coffee knows that it gives you a little performance boost. Um, caffeine was once on the list, and it turns out it's so ubiquitous throughout society um, that after a few athletes were caught and there was an outcry, it was taken off. So there's not a lot of consistency there, um, but there are about 300 or so uh, substances and methods that are on that list. Now, you mentioned alcohol. Let's contrast how the Olympics view alcohol versus how they view cannabis. So alcohol, um, a long time ago, 100 years ago, when there was uh, bike races and and long walking events, alcohol was a a doping uh, substance of choice. Um, and so it has a long history, actually, of being used, whether to, to mute pain or, or not. Um, but alcohol, which has many parallels to, to marijuana, um, has not been a focus. Um, but if this was the 1920s and this was an era of prohibition, um, maybe the U.S. government would have called for alcohol to be on a, an equivalent list. So alcohol is not on a banned list, though I can't imagine you can show up drunk to the games. That's right. Well, that that falls under other... Uh, criteria such as, you know, proper and ethical behavior, uh, not under the doping regulations. Ah, okay. Uh, Angela, Professor, you have also studied the use of high-potency concentrates. Yes. Specifically on motor function. What did you find there? So that was one of the um, topics of our study. Uh, I I should mention that our uh, lab's focus right now is on these um, more recent um, products that are on the legal market. because that are very different from the earlier stuff. They're very different. So you can buy high-potency concentrates that range from from 70 to 95% THC. And and just to contrast that, your average cannabis flower um, in the state, it varies, but it's around 17% THC. So these are 
are very high potency products. So a big focus of our lab is trying to understand what the difference is between these high potency THC products and and flower products of lower potency. So that motor um, study that I mentioned was actually with high potency concentrates to see whether there were impacts of these high blood levels of THC on motor um, function. And it seems that there are. They're small and they're resolved um, within, I think, I think it was within two hours of taking um, the product, but they're definitely real. It strikes me, uh, Roger Pelkey, that there are two possible changes that could come from the Olympics. One is that they could kind of come out in a neutral way and say, we don't demonize cannabis, but we don't celebrate it. And they could come to a place where they say, you know what? Uh, cannabis is so widespread, and it seems to have so many benefits for its users uh, that we're going to greenlight it. Um, what does what the road ahead look like? Yeah, well, anti-doping has to involve the, the the collaboration of more than 200 countries around the world, and many of which where marijuana is still heavily penalized. Um, anti-doping has, has a huge problem with athletes who are, are taking substances to enhance their performance and, and breaking the rules. And it's about priorities. Um, should we be focusing on EPO and steroids, uh, microdosing things, things that actually uh, athletes are used trying to evade the rules with, um, or should we have these social drugs on there? Given the limited resources that anti-doping has, I think there's a pretty strong case to to tighten the focus, um, and that would be the main reason to exclude marijuana. Is just it, it's not a high priority given all of the doping that goes on within elite sport. What questions do you still want to answer, Angela? So one of the questions we'd like to answer more completely is this question of what does um, current levels of THC um, versus CBD do to athletic performance and experience of, of uh, um, about a physical activity. So we have a couple of studies um, that are recruiting right now. The most um, I'm most excited about the one that we're doing in lab. So um, a graduate student, Laurel Gibson, um, who's leading the project, and I um, are recruiting participants who, who use cannabis when they exercise, um, and we're going to bring them into our laboratory um, while they're under the influence um, and have them run on a treadmill for 30 minutes, um, tell us how that feels, evaluate pain, um, affective response to exercise, things of that nature, and then have them do it again when they're not under the influence. Mm. And we can also, because it's on a treadmill and we can monitor speed and um, um things of that nature, we can actually look at performance as well to see how far they go in the same time and how fast when they're under the influence versus not. So this is going to be one of the first direct tests of this question of cannabis and perform- athletic performance. In a field that, as you say, has had a dearth of research. Exactly. Thank you so much for being with us. And Roger, thanks for your time as well. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Angela Bryan, professor of psychology and neuroscience at CU Boulder. Roger Pelkey, professor of environmental studies also at CU Boulder. He's the author of The Edge, The War Against Cheating and Corruption in the Cutthroat World of Elite Sports. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with an interview that'll be signed, sealed, and delivered. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.
Something has shifted in the way we're all talking about cannabis legalization. This is about repairing harm that's been done to communities as a part of the failed war on drugs. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, and I host On Something, a podcast all about life after marijuana legalization. This season, we're focusing entirely on the pitfalls along the path to social equity. Black and brown people are still getting arrested. On Something, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. There's a lot of talk about infrastructure these days, whether Washington should fund a major investment. We are going to look back at one of this country's biggest infrastructure rollouts, and that's the westward expansion of the Postal Service in the late 1800s. Interesting fact, at one point, the USPS had double the locations it has today. In his new book, Paper Trails, CU Denver historian Cameron Blevins writes that this rapid and far-reaching expansion also facilitated a larger process of colonization as the U.S. Post helped accelerate the seizure of native territory. To say that after reading the book, I won't think about getting my mail in quite the same way. And Cameron, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Ryan. Uh, This is going to be a tough transition from high-potency cannabis to the postal system. (laughs) To the postal uh, system. I'll I'll do my best here. We'll do it. You describe the early postal service in the West as a gossamer network. And I, I love that word gossamer, delicate, fine, ephemeral, kind of conjures up spider webs or angels' wings. And yet you call this expansion both gossamer and rapid and far-reaching and a colonizing force. That sounds like a paradox to me. How can something be a delicate, fine, ephemeral, and so transformational? That's a great question, Ryan. I'm actually going to turn around and ask you a question. Um, okay. How often do you go to your local post office? I go quite a bit because I'm a postcard writer. Oh, a postcard connoisseur. And okay. so I need to buy postcard stamps. Forever stamps with some frequency. So I'm assuming when you go to the post office, this is a standalone building. There's staffed by USPS employees wearing uniforms. Um, And that did not look anything like the U.S. postal system in the 1800s. So the experience of going to your local post office uh, for the vast majority of people, if you did not live in a major city, involved going to what was often your general store down the street, and the store owner would pass out letters across the counter. And this is what I mean by a gossamer network in the sense that it was a much more lightweight kind of infrastructure, but because of that, it allowed the overall network to expand really, really rapidly across the Western United States and the country uh, at large. So you didn't need the kind of big overhead and infrastructure of a bricks-and-mortar post office in every town. It was as nimble as, you know, Fred's hardware in town. Exactly. So Fred uh, (laughs) would be the local postmaster, let's say, and he'd get paid, you know, let's say 50 bucks a year by the federal government to, again, hand out letters. Um, And this allowed the U.S. postal system to establish new offices in really distant places fairly quickly. But then the other piece of this, what I mean by Gossamer, uh, is a lightweight, uh, and it was capable of melting away as well. So if Fred went out of business, let's say, yeah, uh, that post office could shut down within a matter of weeks or move to down the road to uh, John's uh, hardware store, right? So it's a much more flexible and ephemeral uh, system than we're used to in the 21st century. Although you assumed that my post office was its own bricks and mortar building, and it's actually a substation that's in a local 
grocery store in my neighborhood. Oh, interesting. Which, yeah. which, which is kind of like history repeating itself. Absolutely. You're that actually seeing say, a reemergence of some of these older models uh, of the postal system today, which is interesting. Yeah, a kind of reinvention that it doesn't always have to be that bricks and mortar post office. You are a digital historian, Cameron Blevins. What does that mean? And tell us about the data set you found from a passionate philatelist, which is what we call stamp collectors, stamp collectors. Right. Uh, Digital history is effectively using any kind of uh, computational technology to study or teach the past. Uh, And historians, as, as a rule, are usually a little bit more hesitant to embrace maybe new forms of technology, perhaps not surprisingly. Uh, But what I do is use things like uh, GIS mapping software to study uh, patterns in the past. So in the case of my book, a lot of the analysis was based on this really incredible data set that was collected by a uh, stamp collector named Richard Helbach, who spent decades uh, looking at archival records and then coming up with a database of about 166,000 post offices that operated in the United States. Some of these very ephemeral, as you were saying. Exactly, exactly. Um, And I was able to get that from him and unfortunately passed away before uh, I ever got a chance to meet him. But that data set then became the basis for a lot of spatial analysis, where you can map out on a year-by-year basis where all these tens of thousands of post offices are located, where they're opening, where they're closing, and start to see some of these larger spatial patterns that are really defining Western expansion during the 1800s. And your book, Paper Trails, The U.S. Post and the Making of the American West, is filled with maps that show the evolution of the post office over time. And I think it very notably reveals who did not have service and who was underrepresented. We'll talk about that in a bit. But one famous mail service from the 19th century West was the Pony Express. But you write that it is largely based in myth. And it was around for less than two years. That was really an epiphany for me. Can you explain that? Sure. I think this is a record. We've gone uh, at least five minutes without talking about the Pony Express. That's usually one of the first, the first questions. questions. Uh, right. When you when you write a book about Western mail, that's the first and only thing people usually know. You sound slightly annoyed by it, I have to say. No, no, not at all. <laughs> Uh, What I mean, I think, by the Pony Express, and it's actually a fascinating topic in that I think it is probably one of the most successful brand names in American history. The fact that all of us know about this, you know, 160 years after the fact. And what's fascinating to me is that that doesn't necessarily line up with the reality or impact of the service at the time. So this was a private uh, business venture that was started right before the Civil War. And the idea was they would operate uh, a mail route across the central United States, across the plains and mountains to connect California to the eastern United States, and then use a system of relay stations with horse riders. It would cut the mail time in half, roughly, uh, and speed up service. The problem was that this was phenomenally expensive, right? You needed 100 horses, relay riders, stations, feed, all sorts of stuff. And so they had to correspondingly charge a phenomenally large amount of money for each letter. So in today's uh, today's equivalent money would be somewhere between $100 and $150 to send a letter, anywhere from 10 to 50 times more expensive than a normal letter that was sent via uh, the U.S. Postal Channel. My goodness. Time. Right. And so it was, financially speaking, it was a disaster. They just kind of hemorrhaged money right and left. 
uh, and eventually were superseded by the telegraph line and kind of shut down. Um, They did carry military uh, information, government information that connected California to the East during this period of secession and the Civil War. So it was important in that regard. But for most average Americans, you would never send anything via the Pony Express. So I think there's just a real I could disconnect. send myself on Southwest or exactly, Frontier right. or Spirits exactly. for cheaper these days. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but it sounds like they had really good PR because uh, the, the name Pony Express seems to reverberate. Did a lot of mail get lost or waylaid in the early days? Uh, less than you would expect. I think one thing that I was surprised at in doing a lot of research uh, was that the U.S. Post in the 1800s was both faster and more efficient than one would expect, given the fact that there, you know, there were no cars, there were no planes, anything like that. Um, but it's also difficult to measure because, much like today, people like to complain. So if things did get lost, they're going to probably mention it. Whereas if you think about the billions of letters that are going through the mail each year successfully— No one's necessarily going to remark on that. Back to the idea of myths. The story of the early post office really does run counter to another powerful Western narrative of the self-reliant cowboy and the pioneer of the Wild West. It's really more of a big government story, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, So I think most of us, myself included, grew up on Hollywood Westerns uh, and the pop culture idea of the West is filled with cowboys and Indians, with uh, covered bonnets and covered wagons moving westward. You don't necessarily see a lot of government officials or agents in that story. And and if you you do, they're always kind of bumbling. Oh, bumbling or maybe even like evil, you know, Uh kind of coming in to like take their land or something. Um, But the real story of the West in the 1800s and really through the 1900s as well is a story of big government. And so that ranges from everything from uh, the U.S. Army, the military, occupying, conquering the West, waging war against native tribes, uh, all the way up through defense contracts today. Right. It really is a story of big government. And what I discovered was that the U.S. Post was at the heart of this story in the 1800s. Do I recall correctly, um, I know that we have listeners who probably have memorized it verbatim, but is the post office spelled out in the Constitution? Uh, So the U.S. Post really does stretch back to the very beginning of the country's origins. And one of the first major pieces of legislation that the new nation passes is to set up the postal system. So the U.S. Post does appear in the Constitution, but it doesn't really establish the um, the administrative organization to implement it. That comes uh, a, a couple years later, but it immediately is one of the first things that Congress ends up doing. I'm very curious, just personally, if you're a letter writer, like, so, what, what gets you into this? I, I get this question a lot, uh, and I'm I'm actually not a big kind of user of, of the mail. Uh, I don't necessarily you know collect stamps or anything like that. Um, I'm much more interested in the history of the Western United States, uh, geography, and some of these larger systems and structures, and trying to understand how they shape our lives and how they've shaped lives in the past. And the post office is a living version of that. Paper Trails is the new book from CU Denver's Cameron Blevins, The U.S. Post and the Making of the American West. And um, Professor, the U.S. Post's Western expansion really did go hand in hand with violence against indigenous people and dispossession of their lands. Uh, You say the U.S. Post didn't cause settler expansion, but it did make it easier. 
I wonder how it was for you to come to terms with that aspect of this history. So to maybe explain a little bit more about what, what I mean by, by that is um, that the U.S. Post functioned as a network that was kind of everywhere in the United States. It was oftentimes one of the first government institutions to appear on the ground as settlers moved into new places. And overwhelmingly in the West, those new, new places were on stolen indigenous land. Um, so if you want to take the example of Colorado, for instance, uh, Colorado becomes a federal territory in 1861. At that point, uh, most of Western Colorado was occupied and uh, basically legally owned by groups of Ute native people. And over the course of the 1860s, white settlers continued to encroach on their land and government officials then extract a series of sessions from them via treaties to take uh, millions of acres of land in Western Colorado. And in 1873, the so-called Bruno Agreement cedes 3.7 million acres of land in what's today Southwestern Colorado, the San Juan Mountains. There's been a series of gold strikes at the time, so white prospectors are kind of uh, streaming onto this land illegally. The government forces uh, you people to cede this land. And within literally uh, a month or two, the U.S. Post opens up its first post office there. As you say, it's often the first sign in, a, in an established community of those white settlers. Exactly. Three years later, there's 20 post offices up and running. And I think it's hard to convey just how remote and inaccessible this part of the country was at the time. Southwestern Colorado, even if you go there today, right? It's mountainous. Uh, it's hard to get to in the 1870s, even more so. Despite that, Right. Thousands of white prospectors are able to stream into this part of the of the state uh, and then also immediately have access to the mail system that connects them to the wider world so they can stay connected with family or friends. And just as importantly, they can also send news back to places like Denver about new mining strikes, further fueling more prospectors coming into this part of the country. That wouldn't have been possible as easily and as quickly without something like the U.S. Post and its ability to expand into these really distant places. The mail system is a form of power, and it's political power as well. I mean, I think about how political literature is sent and how that would have connected folks with Washington, and we can't underestimate that power early on. For sure. Uh, so again, thinking about just how distant a lot of these places are, but you know, despite the fact that you might be living... Um, dozens of miles away from a major town, you can still get the mail once or twice a week. And that's going to allow you to keep up to date with, you know, Democrat and Republican wrangling in Washington, the latest election news. Think about how plugged in we are today. Americans in the 1800s also cared a lot about politics. And the mail was what allowed them uh, to stay connected to these political systems, too. But as the postal system expanded, you write, Indigenous people were not well served by it. Maps in your book show how few post offices existed on reservations and native lands to serve native people. Do you see that reverberate today? It's a really telling pattern from the time. Um, if you look at a map of the U.S. postal system in the 1800s, it's this really, really dense system. There's post offices every kind of 10 miles or so. But as soon as you run up against the borders of a government-run Indian reservation starting around the 1870s, that coverage basically grinds to a halt. And you'd have a post office at an Indian agency or an army fort. Um, Native people still were able to use the mail despite that lack of access. But that is a kind of uh, general lack of access in government services that you do continue to see today 
on a lot of uh, reservations. And even the question of uh, when it comes to voting, uh, specific addresses for particular residences as well, that becomes a problem. Yeah, mail ballots. I mean, there was a lot of talk uh, in the lead up to the 2020 election uh, about voting by mail and the challenges this would pose on, on some reservations where a lot of residents have, you know, P.O. boxes, not physical addresses. So there's all kinds of logistical challenges there uh, as well that you continue to see. And the roots of it are explored in this new book, Paper Trails, the U.S. Post and the Making of the American West. I, I loved in reading this book realizing that historians so often rely on letters. I mean, epistolary relationships so often drive the historical narratives that we know. And remarkably little has been written about the conveyance of those letters, getting them in the mail. So you're doing a kind of almost a meta history in some ways. Will you reflect on why you think there's been so little written about the post office um, I suppose, in comparison to how much is written about letters themselves. I think when things are everywhere, you tend to take them for granted, right? Um, think about the number of times you pull out your cell phone today and send a text message uh, without any kind of understanding, my, again, myself included, or thinking about what's the infrastructure that allows those typed words to transmit, you know, halfway across the country to a friend, let's say. And I think that's the same way in the 1800s. The, the U.S. Post was everywhere. Americans took it for granted. They were able to send mail, uh, postcards, letters, newspapers all across the country. And uh, remarkably, little of them kind of stopped to reflect on that. I think that carries through to historians looking at their letters as well. We're much more interested in the content of those letters rather than thinking about how did they get from, say, New York to Denver. Lest you hear this conversation and think that this book is purely processy, I'll disabuse you of that notion because there are a lot of people in these pages and a lot of personal stories. You wanted to bring to life the early post office through families. Tell us about someone you encountered, a historical figure, who, um, you know, it kind of illustrates the history you're trying to tell. It's an interesting uh uh, way of looking at these large systems, right? So thinking about a, a network that encompasses tens of thousands of post offices, what I realized was you can't understand what it means, its historical significance, without zooming down to the ground level. Uh, so in my case, I ended up following the story of four orphans, uh, the Curtis family, who were born in Ohio, kind of scattered to different family members, but eventually all of them ended up migrating to the Western United States. And there's a surviving archive of letters that they exchanged over about four decades. And reading through those letters, you start to understand not just the content, right, where they're sharing news about family, friends, uh, cousins, but really the fact that no matter where they move, they're able to stay connected to each other. And so the youngest one, uh, Benjamin Curtis, ends up in the backwoods of Arizona trying to start a ranch, right? He's in the middle of nowhere. But despite that fact, He's able to send a letter to his two older sisters in San Francisco, hundreds of miles away, uh, telling them about the birth of their niece, and then receive, uh, receive gifts from them in exchange through the mail that arrives in about five days. Um, and also able to subscribe to half a dozen newspapers from across the country, magazines, right? So despite the fact that he is living in the middle of nowhere in the 1880s, he is incredibly connected to the wider world. 
I think of uh, the earlier republic and how there were multiple currencies floating around until the federal government said, hey, let's all get on the same fiscal page. Was that true of stamps? I'm just curious, like what you affixed to a letter or a package. Right. So it shifted over the course of the 1800s. But the general idea was that you could bring uh, a letter to your local uh, post office and then they would cancel. So they would basically fix a stamp to it once you had paid for it. There was also periods in which you could uh, send it and have the person who receives it pay for it. But that kind of transitioned towards a more system we would be known as today. Uh, One of the interesting things about postage stamps, though, that I, I found fascinating is that they actually served as a shadow currency for a lot of years in the 1800s because they were fractional sums. And especially in the 1800s, there was oftentimes a shortage of coins in circulation, whereas post post uh, postage was kind of everywhere. And so you had people using stamps to uh, buy things, right? It's a, this kind of black market or shadow ah. currency. Thing. Now, home delivery was not always a part of the postal service. We take that for granted, I think, today. Right. Uh, through the end of the 1800s, again, if you were not living in a city, you would have to walk to your local post office to get your mail. And that partially explains why there are just so many post offices in the United States. Uh-huh. Uh, starting around the turn of the, of the 1900s, you saw the rise of rural free delivery. This completely changed the system. This is the modern system we have today where a mail carrier will go to your doorstep and deliver letters, newspapers, et cetera. Moving beyond Fred. (laughs) Exactly. Moving a little bit beyond Fred. Um, And so that starts to usher in again a more modern uh, system of mail delivery that we have today. In the last few minutes, let's reflect a bit on the modern post office. We mentioned vote by mail. Postal slowdowns were a huge subject around the election. The post office budget is often uh, fodder for Congress. The current postmaster general is a divisive figure. The FBI is actually investigating him. There always seems to be whispers of privatization. How do you view the state of the USPS today, given the historical perspective you now have, Cameron Blevins? Yeah, I always joke that uh, I should uh, send Louis DeJoy a, a signed copy as a thank you note for uh, for bumping up my book sales over the past couple months. So the modern USPS, again, looks very different from it did in the 1800s. Um, but you can kind of look at its modern roots really uh, from 1970s onwards, where it was reorganized as the U.S. Postal Service. And what this did was create a kind of hybrid private and public entity where up until that point, the USPS actually uh, received uh, taxpayer funding, whereas starting from uh, 1970 onwards, it was expected to be entirely fiscally self-sufficient, unlike the vast majority of government services we have. Uh, That creates all sorts of issues. Uh, Most notably, it still was required legally uh, to deliver mail to places despite the fact that they might not be profitable to do so. And then that was further kind of complicated by Congress in the early 2000s uh, during during the second Bush administration, passing legislation that forces them to pre-fund retiree benefits. It's kind of a boring and technical thing, but it basically ended up adding about $5 billion of deficits each year to its balance sheet that a private company would never have to do. And what you see, obviously, that corresponds with a giant decline in letter writing, myself included. You probably probably don't. Well, I guess you're a postcard, yeah, so I'm... you're you're single-handedly subsidizing the modern U.S. <laughs> uh, postal service, right? But it's been a giant decline from 2001 onwards as electronic communications has taken off, and so you're really seeing a lot of these debates uh, today around what the future should actually look like. 
And what the past looks like becomes clearer after reading your book. Thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ryan. Cameron Levins, associate professor in the CU Denver History Department. His new book is Paper Trails, the U.S. Post, and the Making of the American West. Over plains and high-top mountains, over rivers deep and wide, like a mighty gallant warrior, it's that airmail special on the fly. Over clouds so dark and stormy, over Well, thanks so much for joining us. And thanks to the Colorado Matters team who never mails it in. Carl Bielek. Allie Butner, Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Megan Verlee. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. She's streaking through the sky Like a bird that's flying homeward It's that